Thanks for listening to this week's social action briefing that we are recording Wednesday night, January 19th. I am Craig Milch. I'm joined by Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. As always, we are on social media at SAB underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Please follow and uh, all right, let's get started. So, I mean, the, the dominant issue right now uh, is voting rights. Um, there, there was a, a plan to move forward um, with trying to pass legislation, despite the fact that uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema intend to block any changes to the filibuster. As of tonight, there were, I guess there was debates on the Senate floor. Uh, Manchin appeared with a big sign that said uh, that, that, uh, that I think that the Senate never uh, has had a majority threshold to move along debate, which is kind of saying like there's always been a filibuster which there hasn't as we mentioned before um the there was no there was no filibuster the the possibility uh, you know at the start of you know the founding of the country in the senate um oh here's i found this sign it says the united states has never been able to end debate with a simple majority um and yeah so there was no, there, there was a loophole that was created after Aaron Burr made a speech in 1805 to the Senate. Um, there was like a rule that anyone could be like, let's get on with it um, and, and force a vote and end debate. And he took that rule out because uh, he didn't think it was needed. And then in like, it wasn't until like 1848 that there was even any type of filibustering. Um, it had to do, it had to do with who would, it would had to do with the, who would print like the rule books for the Senate or something like that. And it was ended when uh, two senators like almost got into a fight and like tried to kill each other and they were both arrested. Um, <laughs> oh, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the good old days, which also is something that Manchin said today that he like he doesn't know what happened to the good old days, but like when really were the good old days, right? Like the whole problem with like the idea of make make America great again. Uh, and let's let's be realistic too. Like the filibuster used to be like a talking filibuster, so you'd have to stand yeah. up and hold the floor in order to prevent a vote from happening. So eventually you would have to give it up because at some point you need sleep or to use the bathroom or eat something. Um, you know, having this inactive secret sort of filibuster where anybody can just say no and you don't have to do anything except say no is really ridiculous. Yeah, no talking at all is needed now. Um, yeah, the and 
I think the first, the first actual filibuster was in like the early 1900s. Um, and, and then in like, I think in 19, like something like 1917, there was like a, a two thirds uh, needed to end the, to end debate. And then in 1975, brought it to its current, like three fifths of now. Um, so like the, like the whole idea that, that it's like the foundation of the Senate and like getting, altering it would, would kill everything is just completely off base. It was altered not that long ago to raise the debt ceiling. So all these arguments against it are utterly disingenuous. Um, and there was a letter that was put out um, by Jerry West, who is the literal logo of the NBA. Um, Nick Saban, who is like a famous college football coach who made me lose $50 on the college football national championship game because he lost made you um, or you bet the money and lost it <laughs> yeah well both both are true <laughs> and this is after the recent like a couple of weeks ago sports gambling became legal in new york so i'm not disclosing any improper activity here but um yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those two and some other sports figures who are like tight with mansion put out a letter urging him to support uh the the legislation um and then later there was reported a footnote was reported out that wasn't in the original letter that was sort of released to the internet the footnote says coach Saban is not in favor of getting rid of the filibuster in the senate he believes this will destroy the checks and balances we must have in our democracy the others signing this letter take no position on this aspect of Senate policies, which is hilarious. So basically what, what this, this football coach is saying is, I urge you to support your legislation, but also continue to obstruct any po possible actual path to passing it, which is basically, that's a letter urging nothing, the status quo. So. Super helpful. Thanks. Thanks so much, Nick Saban, for that and for me losing $50. Um, so, and then Manchin today said he's never changed his mind on the filibuster. Um, and then somebody dug up on his website, like from a post from like 2011, making all the same arguments against it that everyone's making today. So, of course, rank hypocrisy from Senator Manchin. Um, and, well, let's be uh, real. Why? I mean, why is Manchin a Democrat? Manchin is a Democrat right now because he's getting a lot of attention. He should be a Republican. Like, why? <laughs> why do this? But if he's a Republican, then no one's going to be paying attention to him because he's just going to be, you know, what would be part of the Senate majority and he's no longer going to be interesting to anybody. I mean, so do you think that's what motivated him decades ago when he, like, decided to be a Democrat? No, I don't think that's what motivated him decades ago, but I think that's what is motivating him to stay there right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know every thought that goes through the man's head, obviously, because nobody can, but it seems that he has like gotten more conservative as the years go on, which, you know, I'm not saying is a bad thing, except that I, 
disagree with conservatives like people change their mind over time but this is like a really interesting you know time for him where he is trying to do what he thinks is going to get him reelected in the state of West Virginia while also like getting the attention that he <laughs> clearly enjoys yeah yeah well yeah, definitely attention that he enjoys. Um, I'm just like, it It just stands to reason that this power and attention that he has is intoxicating and, and he loves it. I'm not convinced that getting reelected is much of a concern for him uh, um, as much as the ego stuff. And also I think the, the like Occam's razor of everything is just goes back to the fact that he makes a lot of money off of the fossil fuel industry um i don't know how that like directly relates to like the voting rights stuff except that maybe i don't know that it's like a slippery slope to like other anti-fossil fuel industry stuff like in that make you know i don't know you know the, i don't know i don't think there's any real like rhyme or reason other than like being a moderate in the that's elected to office is always going to get you like a certain amount of attention (laughs) um you know and i also think he probably has stayed the same amount of conservative it's just that the party has moved to the left and he's stayed the same so he's become more conservative like in relation to everybody else no for sure i mean i definitely think that there's been like marginal steps of the democratic party like going further to the left but I do think that like he has made some, you know, even if it's just like minor jumps, like further to the right and like, you know, being a, cons- being a, a moderate and being on e- in either party, like being more to the center or being what, you know, used to be called a liberal Republican or like a conservative Democrat that doesn't really exist in the same way anymore would always get you a certain amount of attention because there really just weren't that many of them. Um, and there aren't that many of them right now. So the two people that we're constantly talking about are Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin. And it brings with it a certain amount of attention that, you know, doesn't exist if you're kind of just like the mainstay of the party. You know, if you're just sort of like in that center of your party side, um, it always brings you, you know, a certain amount of attention. And this is like the height of that attention is when the Senate is you know, so close, whether it's 50-50 or 51-49 or whatever, it brings you a certain amount of attention that clearly the two of them feed off of. Yeah, that'll get you attention. Running for president will get you attention. Uh, Running for president is an expensive way to get attention. (laughs) Yes. Um, And also like like, uh, Al Franken type stuff will get you attention. Getting kicked out for uh, improper activity get you attention well that yeah but that attention is the the fleeting kinds like people aren't paying attention to him anymore you know but this is a way to like constantly be in the news like this may be the time where we have spoken the most about joe manchin but he and you know the, the moderates that predate him or overlap him in the past 
you know, always get a little bit more attention than if you just are like the mainstay of your party and people like that, they want to be talked about. And I do think that some of it has to do with, you know, the prospects of reelection, like, look, the stuff that he is arguing against and trying to prevent from happening would really help the state of West Virginia. And there are a lot of people that like support certain things, you know, that he argues against. And yet they still continue to vote for him because what he's doing is spinning his, you know, opposition to these different attempts to make change as, you know, being against going too far to the left or government infringement or government overreach and big government, which are trigger words for yeah. people who live in his state. You know, they may agree yeah. with policy, but what they agree with more is the government staying out of their business. And that's the way that he markets it. And that's, you know, why Republicans win is because they're good at marketing. And that's why people like him win because they're good at marketing. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he loves, he, he loves, you know, fostering the image of him of like bucking the party that's how he wins as a democrat in a state where trump gets 70 yeah. percent of the vote not just bucking um, the party though but bucking the establishment and that's like the, the more important thing it's the same way that like you know republicans will rail against like their own party you know especially if they do something that's like slightly seen <laughs> they'll rail against their own party. And that's what their base wants to hear. It's that anti-establishment, the governments and, you know, you know, getting into my business and I don't want them to. And even if it's helping me a little bit, the overreach is still too much. Um, when that's really why government exists. I mean, it's amazing that like, if we, like, if, if, fire damage was never a problem before today and we didn't have fire departments and you tried to create a fire department like it would never happen like you know the idea of having a service that everybody pays a little bit for and we all get a benefit from it is something that like we couldn't actually establish today and we see that in everything that we try to do like we cannot establish new social programs in any kind of like significant and long lasting way because people are just so like, I don't want the government to do anything, I'll pay for it. And yet you're making $30,000 a year and have two kids to feed. Like, you're, And you're also not. they don't want the government to help quote unquote, those people, the whole drain pool politics yeah. thing that Heather McGee's book is about where like the people, like public pools get closed because yeah because everybody gets to use them and then nobody gets a pool exactly yeah. um and oh and we kind of we mentioned before we started recording another uh a consequence of what's going on with the voting rights debate is that both emily's list emily's list called out i think kirsten cinema directly um, which is an organization that is focused on getting women elected to office and was like the biggest booster of cinema for her win. And they basically said, like, if you don't uh, support altering the filibuster past voting rights, you're done with us in our eyes. And then Nayral, I think, put out a statement that was more general, didn't call her out directly, but or maybe it did, I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember if either one of them called her out directly, but they, I, 
I think they both said that they would not be endorsing in the future anyone who doesn't support altering the filibuster rules specifically for the voting rights legislation. Which is, I mean, it's needed. And I know there's a lot of organizations right now that are trying to get uh, a lot of organizations and people are trying to get the NASW to call out Kristen Cinema because as someone who touts the fact that she's a social worker and is acting very unsocial work at the moment, you know, it's time for them to really call yeah. her out. Um, you know, this is the time, like we want these organizations. This is what, you know, endorsements are to get people elected, but it's also to hold them accountable. Um, and we need to hold them accountable by refusing to endorse them in the future if they're not going to do what we need them to do. I mean, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. And when the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized um, by a Republican Congress under a Republican president, George W. Bush Jr., not, not senior, um, it was a bipartisan issue and it got reendorsed, uh, reauthorized for 25 years and would still be in effect today if the Supreme Court hadn't overturned it in 2013. Like this wasn't, you know, it, it's sad because when Bush was president, I never, ever, ever imagined that I'd be saying this in the future. But under a more sane Republican Party, voting rights wasn't a partisan issue. It was something that you know, was accepted after all this time. And the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized for 25 years. And it was maybe not perfect. And we probably could have done more because we always can, but it was done. And it was accepted as part of the U.S. political institution. We needed this because- Strom Thurmond, Strom Thurmond voted to, to you know, amend and, and renew it. Yeah, yeah. And now we're sitting here with- a Republican Party who has no interest in, you know, bringing new membership into the Republican Party. All they're interested in is keeping their base happy, a base that they've riled up and made insane. Um, and they don't care about like winning new votes. So they know that the easiest way to win is to not allow you know, as many people as possible to vote, you know, to keep the voting population as old, rich, and white as they can. Um, and sometimes mixing in with the old, white, and poor too. Um, but that's what they want. You know, they want to make it more difficult. And it's crazy too, because they really do need people who don't have that much money. Um, but a lot of the things that they're doing make it really difficult for those in poverty, even those white people living in poverty to vote, like having to pay to get ID, having to pay to go somewhere to get the ID um, is really limiting like their own base from participating too. And they don't seem to care because they're doing fine right now. They keep winning elections, the less people that vote and they keep winning elections. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk about like what, what Biden could have done differently to pass voting rights. Like if he, you know, there was this, this article in Rolling Stone where it was like, you know, activists understand that when he got elected to office, there was a pandemic to deal with um, and the economy and, uh, you know, trying to pass Build Back Better. But if this was, if it started sooner, maybe things would be different. But like, even in the article, like Al Sharpton was saying, that uh 
like after the Atlanta speech, which happened earlier in the week, um, that he wished that it was five months earlier. Meanwhile, in July, Biden gave a speech about voting rights in Philadelphia after meeting with Al Sharpton and others. Like I just, there's all all the hand wringing about like what could have been done differently, and I, I think it's just like actually what meant what joe manchin said is like i'm not liberal if you want like more liberal stuff elect more liberal democratic senators like that's we just need 50 senators that are willing to alter the filibuster i mean like you know i don't think another six months that well maybe another six months of pressure would have done something but it also would have and like in hindsight, yeah, Build Back Better didn't happen. So like if they just didn't try that, but then we would have been saying, like, why, why aren't they trying to pass like this really important like climate, you know, and care bill? Um, so, I, yeah, I don't think there's like a right answer on a way to do this when you have someone like Joe Manchin who, you know, yeah, like maybe we, maybe people could have been talking to him sooner about voting rights. Maybe there were other things that like could have been done, but at the end of the day, like he pulled out in the middle of build back better. He doesn't feel the need to do really anything. And like, there's only so much you can do with someone like that. Like there's not (laughs) like what what is the right answer and like trying to convince the wrong person to make the right choice yeah and i'm speaking of build back better it's like it's further down in our outline but let's just jump to it right now um there's talk that um that there is a version of build back better that is being worked on um where to get mansion back interested um it would be the the idea would be to make it more of a deficit reducing bill, which is this reporting came out like like less I feel like less than a week. But yeah, so on the thirteenth, this guy uh, from Slate, uh, last name Weissman, first name Jordan, Jordan Weissman, put out a a, a piece that was basically saying. Like, how do you get Manchin back in the in the game? And what does he care? What does he always care about? Reducing the deficit. So if you if you do like a one point five trillion dollar bill with one point eight trillion dollars of pay fors, then you reduce the deficit by three hundred million. And great, because like there there's a ver- there was a version of the bill that was three point five trillion in spending that was paid for by like taxing wealthy and corporations. So like, by all means, you know, pass something and raise more revenue than it, than it spends. I think it's a fine outcome at this point, given where we're at. Um, you know, I think it would, it would have climate, it would have enhancements to healthcare and uh, some, you know, probably have some type of care related stuff when it comes to um, home care or childcare. It would almost certainly would not have the child tax credit. I think that's just going to have to be a fight for another day. And that was when I said before that it doesn't seem like Manchin cares about getting reelected. That's sort of what I had in mind is like the child tax credit. Like people in West Virginia are some of the people that be helped most that are, have been helped most by it. 
Um, and, yeah, but this is but, where but it's I not, say, this yeah, is where but, I say that like his his messaging and his railing against government involvement is like what's going to get him reelected because yeah. I don't even think people are going to realize that it really helped them. Like, you know, it's so easy to sell that sort of stuff in the way that Republicans have always sold that sort of stuff. Not that Manchin's a Republican, but it's just so easy to sell that sort of stuff of like, well, it, it, it required taxing you more and government overreach. And it's so complicated that people, you know, it's not the easiest thing to sell to people when you have an entire party saying it's really just about government overreach. It's, it's wild, but, you know, this is where I also very much differ from a lot of, you know, progressive people that I'm just like, do whatever you can. Like, if it's half of what you want, if it's a quarter of what you want, like just get build back better done. Like if it's a couple of environmental things, it's better than nothing. Like, yes, we have an environmental catastrophe. Yes, we need to make change, but we have half a country who completely doesn't believe in it. And, uh, and another quarter who are like indifferent to actually doing anything about it. Like we know it needs to get done. Take whatever you can get and keep fighting for another day. Like getting one perfect bill is never going to happen no matter what the issue is. So just take it and run with it, like, and just keep building off of it instead of standing there and fighting for everything all at once. Like, just do what you can. Yeah, and the, even in the scaled down versions, um, it was pretty much, it was the same amount of spending when it comes to climate. The only thing was getting rid of that clean energy standard. But what that really was is just keeping sort of the credits and the incentives for for doing clean energy stuff and taking away the penalties so just all carrots no sticks because that's what mansion had a problem with so yeah like obviously um, any scaled down version later get the sticks huh? later like get yeah. the sticks later like if you can give them the carrots now like just just do it like it's you know we have a crisis like we can't keep you know, fighting every battle to be the end all be all because it isn't the end all be all. We're still going to have to go back to this. There's still going to be things that we have to change and more that we have to do. And there's still going to be better and better technology that comes out every year that makes things easier to do that we're going to have to add and include and just get what you can now and move on to what needs to yeah. be done next. I agree. And, you know, I was thinking recently sort of about you know the whole like reform versus abolition thing and like even like even um like in like our prisons obsolete by angela davis like it's not like abolishing prison you don't just abolish prisons and then leave a vacuum and whatever happens happens you don't just abolish the police and go on about your day like it's it's still abolition always includes creating something in its place like a like a you know often like a robust social safety net and like and like strong institutions that like help people and and give them what they need like that that if you like any any actual type like abolitionist situation is going to require putting things in place first and then dismantling the stuff that then becomes unnecessary. So in reality, like reform and abolition are going to have the same path. That's just sort of how I'm like thinking about it recently. Yeah, I mean, look, like we abolish the police tomorrow. And even if we come up with a bill at the same time, that's going to like 
you know, create more social spending, create social safety nets and, and all these things are going to help people. Like it's still like, we still have to do more. Like there's always going to be more to do this idea that like, there's one perfect bill that's going to like both abolish the system the way it is now and create something that's like so perfect. We're never going to fix it is just stupid. I mean, I don't know how to say it. Like it's just ridiculous. Yeah, you have to piece by piece construct the what, you know, the workable system as it is, and then you can take away the, I mean, that's just how I, I think it needs to work. Like, um, and yeah, well, I took, I, th- th- this week was another week where I like, had a copaganda section in the outline and then took it out for like time or whatever, but what I was going to put in uh, this, there's like a phenomenon around the country that police are like telling crime victims that they aren't going to investigate or arrest perpetrators because they won't get prosecuted because of reforms, which just like mischaracterizes what the reforms are and is just it's just like this blatant harmful like bad faith way of trying to avoid any type of accountability so they're essentially and like you know these this is like for like burglaries where someone gets like whacked in the head and like like actual like violent crimes and like that's not like that's not necessarily what we want is like to like some violent you know violent criminal to have like no nothing like it's just a vacuum like we don't want the vacuum like it's it's bad to have the vacuum so like before you remove the things in the system that suck now like you need to have something there or else you're just in a like it's just not a good situation yeah i mean that's the thing is like i think that's the thing that people like fail to really understand is that like police do not prevent crime social programs are what we need to prevent like putting people in situations where they're forced to commit crimes and just randomly whacking people over the head on the street is not what we're talking about. But like most crimes are, are, are crimes of need. Like people steal because they need people, you know, get involved in like criminal enterprises because it's a way to make money. Like it's, it's, you know, when, when there's no jobs, like this is what people need to do to make a life for themselves, whether it's, you know, selling drugs or stealing or whatever it is, like social programs are what is going to prevent crime. Police do not prevent crime. They react to crime. What people want, what most people want, who are asking to defund the police is to spend that money on social programs to get rid of some of that crime. With the understanding, at least I think that most people who are pro defunding the police is that there is still going to be some form of policing in my mind that is detectives like this is not you know uniformed police officers that are just stopping black kids and frisking them for funsies it's like people who are actually going to investigate after a crime happens 
um, who we're still going to need. Like, I, I have no doubt in my mind that that's still going to exist because yes, there is always going to be some level of crime. We don't live in a perfect society. A utopia doesn't exist, but like we need to take the bulk of the money that we are spending to create police forces that are actually pseudo military that are really just there to terrorize people and use it on something that is actually going to help people. Yeah. Yeah. So like, oh, so um, Scott Hechinger, I don't, I've only read his name. I don't know how it's pronounced, but he's uh, the executive director now of Zealous. I think he used to work for Brooklyn Defenders. Um, he had a post about something happening in Manhattan, where, like where people, store owners are robbed and somebody was hit on the head and, and cops were lying. And then a bunch of people were responding about how it's happening all over the place. So um, a neighborhood in New York, in Park Slope, a bunch of store owners have been told by cops that a serial uh, robber can't be arrested because of bail laws, which just doesn't make any sense. Um, Not even the same thing. Across the country, I don't know, this person says they're across the country, I don't know where they are, but said they see frequent posts on Nextdoor where people post about a crime, like a break-in or a car theft, and are told by the sheriff that it won't do any good to prosecute because nothing will happen to them anyway. Um, a food deliverer working That's at a like restaurant a was robbed. Like lying problem. That's not like yeah. an actual like problem. But the other exactly. thing too is like there has been no, there has really been no significant like defunding of the police anywhere. Like the whole point nope. of defunding the police is to take that money and spend it on something that is actually going to help people. So when police are complaining that like a hundred grand got taken out of their budget, like that's not actually doing anything to help anybody. Like that hundred grand isn't going to things that are kind of prevent, you know, crime from happening or any real social programs to assist people that actually need assistance like it's just not happening anywhere so I don't understand like how people actually believe this like police officers may not want to arrest people just to even create the actual crime that keeps them employed (laughs) like you want people to be scared so that they say we need to keep the police when in reality it's like of your own making that this is happening yeah, cops all over the country are like, so in, so this is where I got this from. In San Francisco, a tech millionaire said how someone got their head bashed with a brick. Police wouldn't investigate because they said Chesa Budin, another name that I've never heard said, but the, the uh, DA, they said they wouldn't prosecute, which is not true. In Seattle, um, they, police say that they can't do anything because of, quote, legislation. Same thing in Austin, like it's just in Connecticut, like all Portland, it's all over. This is cops lying, saying like any type of reform means they can't do anything about crime. Like it's just a cop, it's a cop lying problem, exactly. And you see it in all different types of ways Um, when like journalists just report what uh, police say about an incident as fact and then well, you later find out that they were completely full of shit. Like that it's accountability. And the, the, the reason there's just been such low accountability for forever that that's why there's so much momentum building to just throw everything away. Like there's no accountability. Like if you, like, I, I agree with all abolitionist ten, tenants that I've come across 
but I believe that uh, a a sufficient safety net, like you know, people aren't living in you know in poverty and desperation, coupled with like actual just accountability for lying, misconduct, murdering people, would be a workable system. But there's the 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 powers of like the of police unions and just cops in general resisting any type of reform prevents us from getting to that place and it just leads to more chaos i i mean there are very few like police officers more specifically police like chiefs across the country that are willing to admit that like there needs to be any kind of change um you know, and I, I really have to say that like the ones that do, you know, I respect to a certain extent because they're really putting their own positions at risk and for, to a certain extent, their own lives. Um, and we really just need them to speak out more and like make people understand that like, they're the same ones, (laughs) like the ones that are actually willing to admit that like change needs to happen and like pretty significant change needs to happen. Like it's not okay where we are right now. And just because it has been this way for so long doesn't mean that it's right. Yeah, like, like you know, there are some cops that want change and, you know, or can be quote unquote good, but they're a functioning part of a terrible fucked up system. No, yeah, absolutely. But like, and, and to be honest with you, what drives me nuts is that they're not out there more saying that like this needs to happen. Like, that's what we need right now is people who are actually there, you know? Well, one of those people is the current mayor of New York now. I, but, uh, but he I, wants to bring back, uh, he wants to bring back sol- uh, solitary and stop and frisk. So. It's just like, I don't, like, I, I don't understand. Like neither one of those things is like rationally related to anything that shows that it's good. Like, stop and frisk is horrible. And like, we all know that. And it's so, you know, detrimental to, to anybody just walking around the city who isn't white. Um, but solitary confinement, like, oh, how, how can you even justify that when there is so much research that shows how psychologically damaging that is to people? Like just because, I mean, I'm sorry, but like, just because you're in jail for whatever reason, I mean, prison for whatever reason, like you've been convicted of a crime, doesn't give the state the right to psychologically abuse you. But people and it happens, jail, it happens, yeah, yeah. But people who are in jail aren't even convicted of a crime necessarily. Like you're sitting in Rikers pre-trial, like what happened to innocent until proven guilty? Like what happened to like not being consistently psychologically abused by the state because you are too poor to pay for bail. And you know what got uh, what what got some Republicans to agree with you on that is the insurrection. That's the first time that people started making those arguments of mistreating of uh, people who are detained. Um, <laughs> and which, brings us to what was going to be our next topic before I jumped to Build Back Better, which is uh, some developments in the January 6th commission about an hour before we, well, not before we started recording, but before we like met on what we started our Zoom. Um, the Supreme Court rejected the request from Trump to block the release of White House records 
sought by the January 6th committee, which is fun. Um, it'll give committee access to 750 plus pages of Trump White House records that have been challenged for the last six months or so. Um, Trump exerted his ex executive privilege, what he or tried to exert executive privilege, even though he's no longer executive. And uh, just today, they're finally going to be released. The only justice who would have, who kind of signaled they would have granted Trump's request was Justice Thomas, which is uh, a funny coincidence because his wife is a one of the major sponsors of the insurrection. So I guess it's not super surprising that uh, that he has that point of view. Um, also, was that? Oh yes, means to retire. There was some. There was some like Jeffrey Tubin of CNN like just randomly tweeted about uh, what like what might happen with the retirement. Um, so maybe Breyer's like thinking about it. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so earlier in the week there were subpoenas for Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and Boris Epstein. Um, the latter, who I kind of remember making like weird videos that like were on OAN. I could be confusing him with uh, Seb Gorka, but anyway, they're all lawyers that tried to help with uh, the overthrowing of our government. Um, also earlier in the week, uh, Eric Trump and Kimberly Guilfoyle's phone records were subpoenas were subpoenaed by the committee. Kimberly Guilfoyle being Don Jr.'s fiance, who it was at the convention where she like weirdly screamed the best is yet to come. I think it was. Um, she also spoke at January 6th. So, and then today, also very close, like uh, not too long before we started recording, neo-Nazis Nick Fuentes and Patrick Casey were subpoenaed. So maybe they'll get some comeuppance. Um, already the committee has issued more than 60 subpoenas, interviewed about 400 witnesses, and obtained more than 50,000 pages of documents. Um, so fun, fun with the January 6th commission. Is this, uh, how, how are you feeling? How do you feel about this news, Jess? I mean, it just, it, it's really amazing to me that it, it like takes until it takes until like your own people are affected by something. It shouldn't amaze me, but it, it does that. Like it really takes until your own people are affected by something for you to care about something, you know, with everything that's going on with, you know, the, the insurrection and the people that got arrested for it and, and them being treated poorly. Like it takes until now for you to realize that solitary and confinement is a bad thing. Hmm. Um, but I really, with the commission itself, you know, all of the pushback, that, you know, Republicans are giving to this. And it's like, yes, Benghazi was a bad thing, but how many years of investigations did we have to go through because of political motivations? Like there was an insurrection on the Capitol. Like there yeah. needs to be an investigation. And the fact that you're trying to get out of participating in it in the way that you are really just like does amaze me it shouldn't but it does like 
And it does amaze me some of the stuff that has come out as far as like the text messages go, you know, from people who were literally texting Trump and those that are close to him being like, you need to get them to stop. Like you need to say something about this. Like it's making us all look bad that there was some recognition from reporters and other elected officials in realizing how bad this was going to be for them down the road. By reporters, you mean Fox News ghouls? Yeah, I guess I was using the word too loosely. Sorry. You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, and like, I feel like, I mean, the commission's like quietly doing its work and they're going to have public hearings at some point, but they're like, with Benghazi, you had Republicans like yelling into cameras like on a daily basis yeah like i feel like the intensity of the response to an actual insurrection is like one sixteenth of a benghazi when it should be like 16 times benghazi well i i mean look at the end of the day like i don't disagree with like doing it quietly like an investigation is supposed to be an investigation like it's not supposed to be a political messaging scheme to get your base to go and vote and that's the way that republicans treated the benghazi investigation because that's what they were doing it for like that at the end of the day, like they were really just trying to make the Democratic Party look bad to get more votes for themselves. Like it wasn't, it wasn't to me a serious investigation. A serious investigation is done quietly because that is what you were supposed to do. And it's really frustrating, especially in a day and age when you can Google anything to have to deal with an investigation that's done so quietly because you want to know, because you want information, because you want to make sure that people are actually being held accountable. But that's not really how an investigation is supposed to go. That's how the the way that they handled Benghazi was a political persecution, not, you know, an investigation in like the way that we expect it to be done in a democratic society. Well, yes. However, like, so yeah, it was politically motivated um, and like that was the whole point of it. And then the result was, you know, Hillary's emails, like this whole perception of her being like corrupt and whatever, like they got the results out of it. Uh, but like when you have an actual insurrection and like you're still pivoting to kitchen table issues rather than like getting it to a point where they like that the party is associated with the insurrection properly like not politically motivated but like like not politically motivated but there should be i don't think there there have been or will be like we're i don't think we're on pace to have like this the requisite like political consequences like the the consequences that there should be so like yes like like the investigation should be quiet sure but like the people that aren't involved in the investigation like i just think like the whole like i just like kitchen table versus like the other side like is legitimately corrupt is like the balance of that is just off and i think that's why the like biden's approval is at where it is why the generic on the generic ballot like republicans were plus one in the poll that came out today like there just hasn't been enough messaging to not like create out of thin air like Benghazi, but just like to make people understand the reality of how, like, 
and not this is we're just talking about like the insurrection like like the, one of the craziest things that's ever happened in our history how about like just the day-to-day corruption of the last administration that was like also like the stuff that the the amount of of behavior that went on that was worse than watergate was just overwhelming so that's sort of where i'm coming from no yeah and i agree with you like you know there should be actual like consequences for what happened and at this point there clearly doesn't seem to be like there should be people like Trump should be barred from running for office ever again in his life. Like it is, you know, something that can happen under, you know, our current set of laws in the constitution. Like that's, that's, that should be a consequence. Like he stoked this insurrection. He wanted it to happen. Like he has made it abundantly clear that he was trying to subvert, you know, the, the vote of the people and like, he shouldn't be able to run for office. Like if you are a sitting member of our government and you aided and abetted him in this attempt, like you shouldn't be able to run for office again. (laughs) Yeah, and and, yeah, there should be like, yeah, like those types of consequences, but also just like the branding of 99% of the party as rightfully being corrupt and anti-democratic. Yeah. And I think there are like, I think there are attempts from people outside the government to do that, like to brand the party that way. But I don't, you know, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't understand why Democrats are always so reluctant to like do these sorts of things that we know should happen. Like looking back on history, even if you look, so it wasn't, it wasn't Democrats back then, but it was the more liberal side of our political spectrum you know, during um, or after the Civil War, that was like uh, allowing you know people who had been involved <laughs> in you know the 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 attempt to like leave the Union and to continue slavery, like to be elected and back into like federal government, like when these people clearly should have been barred from like running for office again. And they didn't do it like in any kind of significant way. And these people just like went back to government and it's just crazy. Like it's always been that way where it's like, you can try to, you know, stoke a rebellion, unseat, you know, the elected president, secede from the union, maintain, you know, slavery. And like, we're allowing you to like a seat at the table again, like you don't deserve it. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that that speaks to just the dynamic of not having consequences for like powerful white men, <laughs> essentially. That is like that. That's yeah. I mean, that does, but it also like to me, yes, that is a huge, huge, huge part of it. But it also to me just shows that like there aren't going to be consequences for your actions if you are like an old white guy who has like a tiny bit of power or a tiny bit of like money. But it also just shows that like people who are on the quote unquote right side of history are also just really unwilling to do what needs to be done to dismantle, you know, the systemic like racism and sexism and all these things that exist in this country. It's like, we say we want that, but you won't take the step that really needs to happen to prevent these people from coming back to power. Like, 
they're going to, like, they're going to continue to run. They're going to continue to message better because they will do what they say they're going to do. Like, they're going to try their damnedest to like do everything they can to eliminate, you know, actual history from being taught. Like they, they do these things and they make it easy for people to stay really stupid. Whereas like people on the more liberal side are always unwilling to take that like final step to like stamp that mentality out of society. I think like currently the, the reason why is well, I mean, it's more than one thing, but one big reason is that everybody in power in the party is old. Um, all, like the younger, you know, the quote unquote, like, you know, like the squad types or whatever are all pro, you know, taking aggressive measures, like exercising power, even like, like Pramila Jayapal, um, you know, is, I feel like it would be, you know, take that, it would be, would take you know the steps that we want the party to take if she was leader then that's who i i personally would want to be like next uh house leader and like just like the younger even like the younger senators like you know brian shots and, and whatnot i think it's just that so many of these people are like septuagenarians octogenarians and have just been around so long that they aren't changing tactics with the times and then i think the other thing you know when it comes to like, why won't you take the steps to dismantle, you know, systemic racism, sexism, corporatism and whatnot is the elements of our system that allow big money in politics, which has always been a part of like democracy reform. I think that would, that would be very helpful in um, the shift that we want. Like a lot of the people that are more aligned with like yours and my views are people that don't take corporate PAC money. Um, so I think just being old and being in bed with big money is probably probably two of the leading reasons why they're not doing it. Here's the thing. Do. And like, here's my argument as like why you are both right. But the fact that you're right terrifies me is that by the time these people get into power, they're also going to be old and used to having their yeah. power and wanting to maintain their power. And I also just am not of the belief that only skirting pack money is really changing people that much. Like, I don't care that these people aren't taking PAC money now or if they're not taking it in 20 years, but when they get into power in 20 years and they've been sitting in Congress waiting for their turn for 20 years, that they're going to turn out to be exactly the same way as the people are today because that's what happens. So you just get like, more more entrenched in your power and not want to change you, yes, the system that like, allows you to have it. Yeah, exactly. Like no matter who you are, you know, or where you come from, it's like you get used to it and you want to keep it. And, you know, I don't think that the fact that these people don't take PAC money is really going to change that. I think that a lot of the reason why some other countries are doing better with their younger leaders is the fact that they have younger leaders who don't care as much yet. Maybe they will in the future. Maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's a uniquely American thing. <laughs> um, you know, maybe having younger leaders here won't help. Who who knows? But all I know is that these younger people are going to be old by the time they get in power. And I don't doubt that they will want to keep it. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and 
to be clear, I don't just mean not taking PAC money. There's a whole other slew of like ethics oh, yeah. and campaign finance reforms that would, no, probably, I know. would help. I know, but a lot of people do think that that is like a huge deal. And I think it's important. And I think it's important that more and more people start, you know, skewing PAC money, you know, and start skewing like corporate donations and like all of that stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, none of us are really sitting there. And especially with these younger people who are refusing to take PAC money, who, you know, are, are refusing these sorts of things that we know are the right thing to do. No one's really sitting down and looking at everyone that donates money to them and really trying to figure out where it's coming from, because you are only allowed to take a certain amount of money per individual from, you know, when you're a federal elected official, but that doesn't prevent people from bundling money for you. You know, that doesn't prevent like some big law firm going around to every lawyer there saying, where's your check for $2,500, you know, and having people quote unquote bought out by like certain groups of people. Like, and I'm not sitting down and looking at everything, you know, that's getting donated to these people because I have a life and don't have time to do shit like that. Um, but it's really not that difficult <laughs> to really well, there are definitely people, hide it. Well, I mean, hiding it is one thing, but there are definitely people that look at donations. Like if, if, if like say AOC got like a thousand dollars from like a fossil fuel company, like people would make a big deal about it. Yeah. I mean, people might make a big deal about it, but it's not even those things that I'm like thinking of. It's like the more like minor things, like, I imagine that that's not something that's happening. And even if somebody did incidentally donate money to her campaign who happened to have ties to fossil fuel, like I don't think it's a, like necessarily a person that she would be talking to, but I'm not thinking like those types of things. I'm just thinking of like even um, just like groups of people like that are associated with like not necessarily fossil fuel, but like lawyers offices and like different kinds of things like it's so easy to do that sort of stuff to like gain favor to like have like a group of people like donate money it's like part of the reason why I don't totally agree with like having a limit on how much individuals can donate because it actually makes it easier for you to hide your influence than it would if you just wrote a check for 50 grand like it's way easier to know when one person can write a check for 50 or 100 thousand dollars like oh, that person's bought by X, Y, and Z. Like the, our system actually makes it easier for people to hide who's buying what elected official. Or forces them to hide it. Because in the, the the instance where you could write a $50,000 check, you can either write the check or hide it. And that where we're at now, you have to hide it. You have to, yeah. There, you don't have a choice. Like that's what it is. Like this is the system we live under. You know, I, I, I'm not saying like abolish all campaign finance, but the way that we function right now makes it real easy for people because they have to. Um, and it makes it really- I, I might say abolish, abolish, sorry, I might I might say abolish campaign finance. What, what, what did you say? No, 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 not all campaign finance, because look, like if we're going to abolish the limits, like we want to force elected officials to report who's donating so that we can actually know. Um who, you well, I'm know. thinking like publicly financed elections. I think I like the sound of. I like the sound of you're not allowed to buy airtime anymore. And like, I like the sound of like limiting what they can actually spend money on. So it forces the cost of campaigns to be less. Mm. That's the way, I don't know if it still works this way, but that's the way it used to work in the UK. You um, 
couldn't buy TV time. You were given, every candidate for office was given a certain amount of free time on television, on like the public air, you know, the, the government owned airwaves. Um, and you couldn't buy additional time. And it forces the cost of campaigns to be significantly less than they are in the US. Yeah, that, that would be better than what we have now. Yeah, the whole history of like how campaigns got to be expensive is actually really interesting and something anybody who's taking campaign school next semester will learn about. It's fun. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> in a week, a week and a half, that'll be me. <laughs> I'll stop reminding me. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, quick little uh, critical race theory update. Um, a Florida bill that uh, would prohibit public schools and private businesses from making white people feel, quote, discomfort hmm. uh, when they teach students or train employees about discrimination um, in the nation's past, passed the Senate Education Committee on a party line vote in Florida. The bill's sponsor, Senator Manny Diaz said, no individual is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive whether consciously or unconsciously, solely by the virtue of his or her race or sex, he has said, no race is inherently superior to another race. Quite the jump uh, in those two statements. I like, it reminds me of a lot of the co-opting of like, like one part of an MLK quote by like Republicans and, and like private prisons, like all those ridiculous po like social media posts that came out this week. Um, and Ron DeSantis back in December said, you think about what MLK stood for. He said he didn't want people judged on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. You listen to some of these people nowadays, they don't talk about that. It's just absurd. It's just, yeah, I mean, I'm not... I'm not surprised like you need to they need to throw that stuff in there like a comment about you know no race is inherently superior to the other to like really just rally like their base who feel that as white people they are being suppressed in the system that exists today even though that's the furthest thing from the truth but that goes to the great marketing of those who are on the Republican side <laughs> yeah and they like the from the little that i've you know heard from like sort of the alt-right types and conservatives like they'll they'll make an argument that includes things that any reasonable person would agree with like a person should work hard to get what they want in life like yes but like that but then like like what you're prescribing like stemming from that is what ends up being fucked up and it's also usually in the context of ignoring a lot of shit like just like this quote from diaz that no individual is inherently racist sexist or oppressive like like sure um but like everyone grow like everyone gets raised and participates in this racist and sexist and oppressive system and you have to actively you know be anti-racist anti-sexist to you know or else you're just you're uh 
you're enabling the the racism and sexism like that's the part that they will that they are leaving out and also that they would obviously deny that's like the whole the whole crux of like why well the reason why they're making crt a thing is to rile up their base about and fight culture wars but like the what they're ostensibly trying to do is like avoid this whole discussion yeah yeah um yeah so just uh just thought i'd include that as just another example as as we kind of track what's going on with with that um and then the last thing that i wanted to bring up um i'm gonna so what i was gonna say about the what we talked about with build back better before like adding pay fors raising revenue beyond what what is being spent like i don't like as someone who kind of you know is coming from like the whole modern monetary theory mindset of like we the government print can like prints its own currency it's monetary sovereign can spend whatever it has the productive capacity to afford like i don't think like uh like climate and healthcare and like you know infrastructure and stuff like that needs to be paid for quote unquote but um one thing that like raising taxes on like wealthy and corporations can do is fight inequality um it can also disincentivize behavior that we don't want like pollution or you know fossil fuel activity and whatnot um so that's where i was going to transition into the oxfam inequality report that came out um that has lots of depressing statistics about the state of inequality in the world and what happened over the pandemic um the the largest surge in billionaire wealth since records began um a new billionaire was created every 26 hours this pandemic hmm. the total wealth of billionaires jumped from 8.6 trillion dollars in march of 2020 to 13.8 trillion dollars in november 2021 which is a bigger increase than in the previous 14 years combined um i'll caveat this in, in a couple seconds but so the world's richest 10 men saw their co collective wealth more than double in that period jumping by 1.3 billion dollars a day the their those 10 men uh their wealth is six times greater than the world's poorest 3.1 billion people um if these 10 billionaires and this is like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, like Warren Buffett, like people we've heard of um if they if they lost 99.999% of their wealth they'd still be richer than 99% of humanity um the caveat being you know this is starting from march of 2020 after the stock market crashed where a lot of their wealth is tied up but even if you did uh mid february their the the increase in their wealth would still be 70% um which is still a record breaking increase um so some other stats inequality contributes to one death every 4 seconds inequality of income is now a stronger indicator of whether you'll die from covid-19 than age the um a a, a data scientist named yu yang gu ran multiple versions of a model 
that look to find correlation between 41 different variables and American state level deaths from COVID-19. Only three variables consistently had non-zero coefficients, inequality, population density, and nursing home residents per person. And of those three, inequality had the biggest effect. Um, some kind of hypotheses as to why pre-existing health from uh, people with, uh, you know, in, in areas of uh, income inequality, working conditions tend to be worse in areas of with uh, high inequality and tr like social capital, basically trust in institutions tends to be lower in areas of inequality. So um, it's just, it, it kind of, for me, it, it sort of reminded me like, you know, while we sort of look at all the various issues, like the ones we've been talking about, um, there's like, it's like, this is sort of what underlies all of it, you know, like the, the inequality that's been growing to ridiculous levels. It's, it's like every, all this, everything we've been talking about in some way or another, I think kind of stems from it. Um, and, you know, what can we do about it? Tax the wealthy, you know, marginal tax rates in this country, like the highest level of marginal tax rate used to be above 70% for decades and decades. It's now 37%. Um, and, you know, it didn't kill uh, our economy to, to do that. Um, so, you know, taxing wealth, establishing the social safety net, like we've been talking about, you know, these are, these are the types of things that, that need to be done to, to counteract this stuff. There's also in the report and in the thread about the report, stuff about carbon emissions, about, uh, about, I think some, the consulting firm McKinsey came out with the report. One of the things pointing out is that it was like, what was it? 3.4 million black Americans would be alive today if their life expectancy was the same as white people. Um, though then how, there's the like 1%, like the global 1%, which by the way is earning $172,000 and up. Um, they, they use way more like carbon or contribute to like orders of magnitude more carbon emissions than like the lower 50%. So like carbon emissions as well. Um, and of course, like the gender pay gap is all tied up into this. Um, Argentina has put in a wealth tax that's been working. Um, universal healthcare is now, you know, it, it's obviously in a bunch of places. It's being implemented in places like Costa Rica. Um, we also need, you know, stronger workers' rights, taking on monopolies, um, which, I, you know, the pandemic has obviously sh shown a light on, you know, working conditions in labor. So, you know, it's just kind of a global perspective to what we've been talking about, um, but it all ties directly to everything we've been talking about, sort of like when it comes to like domestic policy and politics. So that is the global view um and it's a little depressing but i hope that you have all enjoyed listening to this week's social action briefing thank you to Ridian falcone for the podcast inspiration our logo and to vinnie alfano of anonymous hair salon in soho for the theme song 
see you all next week.